Three Circle. Welcome to week three of our teaching series entitled Neighbor. It's a deep dive into uh, what is one of the most familiar of all the parables that Jesus taught, and that's the parable of the Good Samaritan. So we want to uh, take another look at it today. So, so let's jump in. If you have your Bibles or your devices there handy, uh, turn to Luke chapter 10, and we're going to begin reading uh, at verse 25. So let's read together. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, who is my neighbor? Now, why do you think that uh, the lawyer asked that particular question, who is my neighbor? I, I think in part is probably why uh, even today, whenever you begin to uh, dig into this parable, the parable of the Good Samaritan, uh, we ask that question. I think in part the lawyer asked this question because he didn't want to love one person more than he was obligated to love. He just wanted to know the limits and he didn't want to go beyond those. You know, if Jesus had turned the question on him, if Jesus had responded by saying, will you tell me who is your neighbor? This lawyer would have had a very deliberate answer. And it would have been based in the law since he was an expert in the law. He would have said something like the fact that I'm going to love those that I am bound to love. And it's a reference to the law. So who, whoever the law says I must love, that's who I'm going to love. And the law was very clear about who they were required to love. And it was sort of a, a funnel, you know, narrow at the bottom and gets wider at the top. And 
it, it would begin with family. They were required to love family, but then going further, it might be their extended family. Then a little further, it would go out to their village or their town, then eventually to their tribe. But then they would eventually reach the cap that beyond that cap, they weren't required by law to love anyone. And the cap for them would be summed up by uh, a simple phrase that, uh, uh, that they were bound to love those who are of the same blood. And so for a Jew, what that meant was that they're not to bound to love someone beyond blood, so beyond a Jew. And so that was the cap on what he would have felt was required of him by the law. But Jesus, you see, sort of blew the top off of the cap. He blew the cap away. Now, Jesus would have started at the very same place because Jesus would have felt in the New Testament would, have, would teach us that we can't be a neighbor uh, to the greater community if we're not first a good neighbor in our own home. I mean, the first neighbor that we should be responsible for is going to be our, our spouse and our children. We can't be in the greater community extending grace and mercy and love, encouraging people and, and assisting people in need if we're not taking care of those that are, first of all, right there within our own household. But then what happened is Jesus just got rid of the limits, though. He said there's no cap on this. It, it may start with family, but it extends on well beyond that. You see, for Jesus and what is illustrated in this parable is that a neighbor is someone who crosses our path whose needs we have the ability to meet. So now understand, that, that doesn't mean that we're responsible for everyone and every need everywhere. I mean, the Samaritan didn't quit his job and, and start looking for wounded travelers on, on highways and roads throughout the Roman Empire. I mean, what he did was he became a neighbor to this man, the man with whom he crossed paths, the man who he had the ability to help. This means that when we cross paths with individuals, that when we have these encounter with individuals, you know, we have to realize that that these, as followers of Christ, these are divine appointments. These are not accidental. Because if we believe that our steps are ordered by the Lord, that our path is set by God, then whenever an individual in need crosses our path, we have to realize that this is a chance that God is giving us to be a good neighbor, to live out our faith, to live out what it means to be a Christian. You see, we said in the very beginning of this series that the wrong question to ask was the question that the lawyer asked, and that is, who is my neighbor? A better question would have been if he had asked, am I a good neighbor, or even how do I become a good neighbor? And I think the answer to that question is illustrated by the behavior of the good Samaritan, the Samaritan, as he encountered this individual who was in need. So let's continue to read the parable. In verse 30, it says, Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. 
Likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, and stop, just stop there for just a second. Notice that all three of the characters that are a part of this story saw the same thing. But the problem is that they did not see it the same way. You see, the priest and the Levite saw the needs of the man. They looked at the man and they saw all the things that were wrong with him and they began to calculate the cost and the risk to themselves if they were to get involved. What was this going to cost them? How would this impact them? In fact, they probably were asking themselves the question, what could happen to me if I get involved? And after weighing all of the potential consequences, they decided that it wasn't worth it to do anything to assist this man who is in need. And so instead of doing anything, they just kept walking. But the Samaritan who saw exactly the same thing that they saw, saw it differently. You see, the Samaritan saw the man that was in need. You see, I think a part of the genius of this parable is that the identity of the man is actually left out. I mean, in in fact, look how he's described in Scripture. He's described as obviously being bitten, beaten, but it says that he was stripped, and it says that he was left half dead. Now, some of the ways that you could identify people in that culture would have been by the clothes they wore, but his clothes had been taken from him, so he couldn't ascertain his identity by that means. Another way would be to hear them speak because if they heard a different language, they would know where they were from, or if they heard a certain dialect or a certain way of speaking, they would know that they were from the same country, but maybe from a different region of the country. But notice it says that he was left half dead. The implication here is that he was more than likely unconscious or he was semi-conscious, so there was no way to figure out who he was or where he was from by what he wore or by what he said. Now, I know that there are a lot of individuals who assume that he was a Jew. I get that. But the truth of the matter is that that is not stated in the story. Jesus never gives us the identity of who this individual is. Now, why do you think he left that detail out? I think he left it out because it really shouldn't matter. It shouldn't matter who he was or where he was from all that mattered, and this was the response of the Samaritan, was that this was a man who was in need. You see, I, I have the, the fear that if some of us were telling the story today, we would feel compelled to add in identifiers or descriptors so that we would be able to know exactly who this wounded traveler was. We would add details by, like saying it was a, a white man who fell among thieves, or it was a black man who fell among thieves, or we would say it's a poor man or it is a, a rich man. We would add details like saying it was a, a Democrat who fell among thieves or a Republican who fell among thieves. We'd say it was a gay man or it was a straight man, or we would say it was an Auburn fan or it was a Bama fan. And the reason that we would feel the motivation to have to add those descriptive words is because we are always looking for ways 
to give ourselves permission to turn away from the need and just walk straight ahead, just move on, that there's no need for me to have to render any care or any service here. But you see that, but all that mattered to the Samaritan, the only thing he was concerned about was the man. That's the way he saw him. It was a man created by God, stamped with the Imago Dei, the very image of God upon his life. And he didn't concern himself with the things that would have made them different from one another, the things that would have created obstacles or distance between them. He was only concerned about what made them the same, a man created in the image of God. You see, to be a good neighbor, I think we must look beyond all of our differences and focus on our shared humanity. Quit concentrating on the things that make us different and look at the things that are common among us. And the reality is that experts tell us it doesn't matter where in the world you may live, doesn't matter what culture that you may have grown up in. We all have the same basic relational needs. We're the same at our very core that all of us need acceptance and affection, appreciation, approval, attention, comfort, encouragement, respect, security, support. All that means is that at our core, we're the same. And the Samaritan teaches us that it's not important what the differences are. It's more important to realize that we are the same. You see, it's much easier for me to love my neighbor as myself, or as some translations put it, like myself, when I come to the realization that my neighbor is in fact like me. The differences aren't important. It's what makes us the same that's important. So the Samaritan saw the man, and then it goes further. In Luke 1033, it continues, but a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, saw him, but then look what it says. He had compassion. So the second thing the Samaritan did was he allowed himself to be moved with compassion. The word compassion in the, in the Greek is, a, is an interesting word. It comes from a root word uh, that's pronounced splachnon. You know, try saying that 10 times, you know, real fast. But at its very root, it's a reference to uh, the inward parts. In fact, the, the bowels of a human being. So that's sort of weird, isn't it? When you're trying to talk about uh, compassion, that it's referring to somebody's intestines. You know, but it, it's, I think we understand and we realize it's used in the Greek and similarly to the way that we would use the word heart today. Because we talk about things that stir our heart. We talk about things that touch our heart. And we may see something or experience something, and we will say things like, it broke my heart. Now, we all know that the heart is not where emotions originate. We know that the heart is simply an organ, a muscle that pumps blood through our system. But yet, what we know is that we use that as a figure of speech. And so in the Greek there, it's the same thing. They, if they experience something, they might say that it was a gut-wrenching experience. Or if they experience something, they might say that it was like a punch in the gut. And what they're referring to is that, that they're having a significant emotional reaction 
to someone or to something. So it says he had compassion, but the English word compassion is interesting as well. It comes from the Latin. It comes from a prefix come, which means with, and from the Latin word pati, which means suffer. And so that the English word compassion means to suffer with. So what does that mean for us to suffer with someone? If someone is going through difficulty in a hard time, what does it mean for us to, to be, you know, to be able to suffer with them? It's, it's akin to the word empathy. We use that word a lot. We'll say that I empathized with someone or that they empathized with me. And empathy means to relate to another person's pain as if it were your own. Relate to what someone else is going through in a way that it feels like you are going through that as well. And we've all experienced moments like that when we empathized or someone empathized with us. Someone tells us what's going on in their life. And as they are pouring their heart out to us, we begin to feel what they're feeling. It may be that we have actually experienced the very same thing that they're going through. And so we connect with it. We, we feel what they're saying to us. But it may be that we haven't experienced exactly what they're going through, but we know in our own life experience what emotional pain feels like. We, we know what desperation feels like. We know what isolation feels like. We, we know what fear feels like. And so we begin to feel what they're feeling. And it's an amazing thing that happens between human beings when someone empathizes with someone else. They feel what they're feeling. So what's amazing about this, this is not just some random thing that happens, but in fact, this is part of God's plan for caring for individuals who find themselves in need. Matter of fact, there's a verse of scripture in 2 Corinthians 3, verses 3 and 4. I want to read it to you from the message, because I love the way the message puts this. It says, all praise to the God and Father of our Master, Jesus the Messiah, Father of all mercy, God of all healing counsel. Now listen to what he describes. He comes alongside us when we go through hard times, and before you know it, he brings us along someone else who is going through hard times so that we can be there for that person just as God was there for us. You hear what it's saying? It's saying that in our life experience, as we're traveling along our life's path, that we all experience hard times. But we have the assurance that in those hard times that God is going to comfort us. But how does God do that? Now, there are a lot of ways that God can bring comfort to us in, in times of difficulty, but I think more times than not, the way he does it is through another human being. God uses someone else to step into our path, and that individual comes alongside us and gives to us exactly what we need in that moment of trouble. They provide for us the security, the help, whatever it may be that we need it's given to us there. But then we go on our path. And what happens? It says that, and before you know it, God brings someone else into your path, but this time they're the one that's in need. And so what happens there? Then what we do is that we reach into our reservoir of what God did for us through that other individual, and we pour that into their lives. 
All along the way, we say God is the one who comforted us. But it's individuals that God is using, and God will use us to pour into them and then, and then use someone else to pour into us. But here's the thing about that. It, it, to, for God's plan for comforting people to actually work, you can't just feel what they're feeling. You can't just empathize with what they're feeling. You also have to act. You have to do something about it. You see, because compassion is not just to feel an emotion, but it's to actually do something. You say compassion equals empathy plus action. So this Samaritan saw the man, responded to the man, he found out exactly what his needs were. He felt compassion for him, but he didn't turn and walk away. He stepped right into the situation and did something for the man. You see, the Samaritan saw the man, allowed himself to be moved with compassion, but then he acted. And it's not compassion until there's action. Look, at, look how he acted, verse 34. He went to him and bound him up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Now, it's interesting. There are multiple verbs used to describe the action that was taken by the Samaritan. Five of them are actually the very same word, and it's the word for touch. And so it says that the Samaritan, you know, touched and touched and touched and touched and touched. And so what it's referring to is that it speaks of the personal action taken by the Samaritan. He acted personally. And notice as the, as the parable sort of winds down, how the lawyer described the actions of the Samaritan. In verse 36, he says, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among robbers? And he said, this was his conclusion, the one who showed him mercy. The one who showed mercy. So he describes the action taken by the Samaritan as being acts of mercy, merciful things. So the Samaritan demonstrated his compassion, not by just feeling something, but by doing something. The question for us then is, is what are we supposed to do? What are we supposed to do when God brings those individuals into our path, those individuals that are in need, when God gives us those divine encounters, what are we supposed to do for those individuals? How, how do I show my compassion? How do I become a good neighbor? Well, understanding what mercy means. Mercy is doing what you can with what you have. That's all. Just do what you can with what you have. I mean, as God directs those people into your path, don't complicate it. Just do what you can with what you have. You see, that's the standard that the priest, the Levite, and the Samaritan were judged by in this parable. The standard of do what you can with what you have. The priest comes along. He's more than likely riding an animal, but he would not have had oil and wine. So he could have provided transportation. He could not have provided 
the oil and the wine to cleanse and to soothe the wounds. So he would have only been judged by giving transportation. But he didn't do that. He didn't do what he could with what he had. The Levite would not have had an animal to ride. He would probably have had oil and wine. And so the judgment on him is that he did not act in a merciful way because he didn't do what he could with what he had. He could have treated the wounds, but he didn't do that. The Samaritan, however, comes along and he has more resources than the other two. Well, what does he do? He bandages the wounds. He treats the wounds. He puts him on his animal to provide him with transportation. He takes him to a safe place. He gives money to make sure that he gets all the care that he possibly needs. And so we look at him and we say he had more that he could do, but he lived up to the standard of mercy because he did what he could with what he had. You see, it's not complicated. Mercy is simply seeing a man without food and giving him food. It's, you know, it's seeing someone who is starving for love and giving them love. It's seeing someone who is lonely and giving them company. It's seeing and encountering someone who is discouraged and giving them encouragement. You know, it's just to see the need and do what you can with what you have. And if, if, if you find yourself still confused, you know, wondering, but what am I supposed to do when I encounter need? Just remember this one simple verse. It's taught by Jesus just a few chapters earlier in Luke, and it's a, it's a part of the Sermon on the Mount. In Luke chapter 6, verse 31, Jesus says this, as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. We call it the golden rule. Treat others the way you would want them to treat you. And so in this context, you, you, if you encounter someone in need, just ask yourself the question, if I was the one in their shoes, what would I want someone to do for me? What would I be, be thrilled about if someone did that uh, for me in that time? You know, let me illustrate this way. Let's say that, that you're in a car wreck. And the car is uh, badly damaged and, and, and you're severely injured. Your car is just off the shoulder of the road and you're slumped over the, the steering wheel. And because of the injuries and because of the pain and cars are driving by. What, what in that moment, what would you want someone to do for you? Would you want someone who would sympathize with you? You see, sympathy sometimes is just a code word for what we're really thinking, and that is that it really stinks to be you right now. I mean, we, we even say that sometimes. We'll be talking with someone, they'll tell us what they're going through, and we'll say, man, I feel for you, but I wouldn't want to be in your shoes. Because we're, we're sympathizing, but it just means, man, that's a mess. I'm glad I'm not in the mess. And someone who sympathizes just drives right on by. Maybe you want someone to empathize. That, that's a good thing for someone to have empathy. And as they drive upon the wreck, they would see your car and seeing the extent of the damage, they would be like a, a knot in their gut that would begin to form. And as they looked in the car, they saw you slumped over, obviously severely injured. They would feel that. They, they would think, I know the desperation he must be in. I understand the fear that he must have. I, I know what it is to hurt, but they still just drive by. 
Or would you want someone who would drive up and look inside and see that you're there? They pull over, they stop, they run back to where you are. They're not a medical professional. They're not a first responder, just an average individual. And all they really know to do is to lean into the car, to put their hand on your shoulder, and to whisper to you in a calm way, you're not alone. I'm here with you, and I'm going to stay right here until help comes. I mean, who would we want in that, in, in that instance? Do we want the, you know, the sympathizers, the empathizers, or do we want someone who will take action? Obviously, we want someone, when we're in need, to step in and do something to help us. Because as we look at that scenario of the car wreck, I mean, who would we say the neighbor was? Obviously, the person that got out to help. It, it, even in our terminology today, if that was covered on the nightly news and they were talking about a good Samaritan, who would they be talking about? The people who sympathized and drove on or empathized and drove on? No, it would be talking about the person that did something. So who's the true neighbor? The person who feels but also acts. Who's the good Samaritan? The person who feels but also acts. So the next time someone steps into your path that is in need, just ask, what would I want if that was me? What can I do with what I have to help them? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word and how it does so much in our lives. It comforts us, it leads, guides, and directs us. Sometimes it challenges us. And so my prayer is that through this study of the Good Samaritan, that, that we would, in a very conscious way, remove the blinders from our eyes and that we would be conscious of those around us and the needs that they have. We, we would not just blow past people that you place in our lives, that you caused to cross our path that are in needs, in need. But God, I also pray that you would, that you would sensitize us again, God, that you would cause our heart to be malleable again, that we would feel what people feel, that we could sense the pain that they're going through. But God, I also pray that this week, if that happens to us and we encounter someone like that, God, that you would help us to do more than just feel, but you would help us to act, allowing you to minister to them through us.